Hey, uh, welcome. My name is uh, Randy Patton, and it's a, a privilege to be able to be with you and to be with you for these next two hours. And uh, I get to be with you, I think, maybe one more session tomorrow. And it, I just love being back here at Grace Bible Church and Pastor Enns and Pastor Keith, just such a wonderful team with their spouses and uh, the leaders. I mean, you folks just run a great conference. And uh, it's a joy for me to be back and to participate. And uh, apparently the last time I was here, I did a well enough job that they're letting me teach three times in the advanced track this time. All right? Last time I got once, I think. So moving up in the world. And uh, I'm thankful for that. If you'll find your notes that are called Developing Spiritual Maturity in Others, uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll charge ahead, okay? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here and for the wonderful work that's being done uh, through the churches cooperating for this conference. And I pray that uh, you'll help each of those, each of us that are presenting, that our presentations will be clear and genuinely edifying and equipping for the dear brothers and sisters that are listening. And Father, I would ask in a very special way that you would help me in these uh, next couple of hours to uh, tell the story of your grace in my life and things I've learned in such a way that uh, Christ will be honored and glorified and these leaders uh, would gain insights that would help them in their own lives, their own ministries, but also particularly in their ministry of counseling others in positions of spiritual leadership. And we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, our topic for this session and then the following session is how to develop spiritual maturity and others. And by way of uh, introduction, uh, let me just mention that um, there's some questions that you might want to think about. And these are questions that I personally grappled with um, years ago, like... I kept hearing this statement early on in my biblical counseling career. I kept hearing the statement, the best biblical counselors are first good counselees. And I kept thinking, why do people keep saying that, that uh, leaders that I was listening to? Another issue that I had to grapple with um, was the, the question, how do biblical counseling principles impact philosophy of ministry? Um, I was trained in biblical counseling two years after becoming uh, a pastor, and um, I was willing to get down in the ditch and help people, but I discovered pretty quickly that when I did get there, I just didn't have many answers. And so I was trained in biblical counseling, and after being trained in biblical counseling, it wasn't very long before I began to think, okay, now how does what I believe about ministering the word in private influence how I think about just overall church ministry? You know, philosophy of, of, of ministry thing. How do biblical counseling principles impact philosophy of ministry? And then <clears throat> I also found myself wrestling with a question, and I've been asked this question since I came to some answers on it. I've been asked this question over and over and over again around the, the country. How do I influence the church where I serve to become more fully biblical? In other words, how do I encourage my church to embrace not just biblical counseling, but what we would maybe think of a biblical philosophy of ministry or a neuthetic philosophy of ministry? And so um, what I want to do is take a little bit of time and tell you about my personal pilgrimage to learn the answers to these questions. And um, um, I recognize that this is an advanced track, so all of you have been through basics. Some of you are certified, and you've been taught biblical counseling principles about how to solve problems. And I'm going to try to suggest some specific principles that will address the questions we've just addressed. And um, <clears throat> in this session particularly, and the next, I'm going to be more autobiographical than I am on any other time when I teach. I'm always a little nervous when I start this uh, because <clears throat> it is different for me. And um, But I have found that uh, people keep telling me, Randy, you need to keep telling this story. And my goal is 
to magnify the grace of God in my life and then to encourage you in your service for Christ. So just a little bit of a background about how God worked to ultimately prepare somebody for Christian leadership in the biblical counseling area. I grew up in a Christian home in uh, southeastern Ohio in a very rural area. Our uh, church averaged between probably 75 and maybe 110 or so, depending on when the last revival service was. And um, our um, our county seat had a population of 2,000, so it was a very rural area. And just as a quick aside, out of that small church came two guys who've had an international impact in the area of biblical counseling, John Street and me. John Street's dad was my pastor <clears throat> during my college years, and we both... Uh, came out of that small country church. And um, I was saved at church camp. I dedicated my life to vocational Christian ministry at an early age, as an early teenager. And by the age of 14, when I was a freshman in high school, you know, English teachers give you that assignment, you got to write an essay, what I want to be when I grow up someday. Uh, age 14, uh, I was writing an essay that when I grow up someday, I want to be a missionary pilot or an evangelist. So I was headed toward vocational Christian ministry. And God did a work in my life. I was sensitive and warm to spiritual things. And uh, people in my church encouraged that. And though we lived in a small area, I got connected with a Youth for Christ organization in a town north of us about an hour, hour and a half. And through them, I got my horizons about things that were happening were greatly expanded. And through my contact with that Youth for Christ group, I was invited to participate in a rally between Christmas and New Year's for teenagers in Washington, D.C. And uh, there were hundreds, thousands of teenagers that showed up for this place. I mean, it was a deal. And for a kid growing up in the Hicks the way I did, I mean, this was amazing. And one night, one of the guys that's preaching, he starts preaching on the life of Daniel, and he's charging us teenagers and challenging us to go back to our public high schools and to be a bold witness for Christ. And he preaches away at that a little bit, and then he stops and gives an invitation. He says, how many of you are determined to take a stand for Christ? And all across this huge room, hands go up, including mine. And then the guy preached away, and about being a Daniel and in bold for Christ and everything. And then he stopped and said, how many of you will carry a Bible to school with you every day to be a Daniel? And uh, hundreds of hands went up, not quite as many as earlier. And then the guy preached away about being a capital D Daniel and, I mean, really putting yourself out there so that people are known that you're a Christian. And he stopped and gave an invitation and said, how many of you will carry a Bible on top of all your other books every day when you go back to your public schools. And hundreds raised their hands, including me. And then um, he preached away, and then not to leave anything to doubt, he uh, stopped and said, how many of you are determined to be a bold Daniel in your public school, a bold witness for Christ, and you'll carry a red Bible on top of all your books every day. And he didn't ask us to raise our hand. He asked us to stand. And I was one of the hundreds that stood. And it just so happened, after that session, they had red Bibles for sale. <laughs> so I bought me a red Bible. And this I was in my uh, Christmas of my junior year in high school. And so for the last year and a half in public high school, I carried a red Bible on top of all my books every day. And uh, that does something to you. It does something to your social life. And that I look back now and I see that that was the beginning of God seeking to mold me in some ways to be a leader and to be willing to kind of go against the flow, maybe in some ways. And uh, definitely impacted my social relationships. And I, 
during the high school, I didn't really have any real close friends, and I did very little dating because of my commitment to only dating Christians. So after high school graduation, I went to Cedarville College, now Cedarville University in Ohio, where four of the most meaningful years of my life were spent. I'm so thankful for my days there. Had great opportunities for developing leadership abilities. My desire for vocational Christian ministry was enhanced. And uh, while I was there, I met my wife, Cindy. And um, when I first went to Cedarville, I mean, I thought I was on the edge of the millennium because here's all these Christian girls that were available for dating, which was a huge thing for me. And uh, so I uh, dated some, but then I figured out that Cindy would be the best one for me to spend the rest of my life with and finally persuaded her to say yes. And uh, we were married by Dr. James T. Jeremiah, who was the president of the school at that time. And uh, we got married the day I graduated from college. Graduation was over at noon. Our wedding started at 3 in a town a half hour away. And that's kind of how we've been living ever since. And um, Dr. Jeremiah, the president, uh, in one of our sessions with him, he told me that when you get the Grace Theological Seminary, where I was going to seminary, he said, you'll get a great education there. But he said, no school can teach you how to pastor people. You need to find a man that will work with you and spend some time with you. And he told me, he said, if uh, you get there and you can't find a pastor right around the school that will pay attention to you and help you. He said, my son, David Jeremiah, is starting a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about an hour away, and you might contact him. So I checked with the churches right around the seminary. I mean, they had seminary students taking up the offering, and I told my wife, I already know how to do that. i got to find somebody who can teach me something more. And so we ended up going to visit Blackhawk Baptist in Fort Wayne, where Dave Jeremiah was just in his first senior pastorate. And it was a brand-new church. The attendance is taking off, and things grow, and he needs help. But all the money they're getting, they're trying to plow into the building and new building and everything. And I show up. I don't need money because we'd adjusted our living to live on Cindy's teacher salary. And I just need somebody to teach me how to pastor. So, of course, watching or listening to Dave Jeremiah is a tremendous expositor. He's also a visionary leader and a a great leader. Uh, Later, I was asked to be a a deacon. And um, I learned how to lead people to faith in Christ on Wednesday nights, watching Dave Jeremiah do it in people's homes after prayer meeting. And uh, God was so grace to me. Later, I was hired to be an intern and then be the custodian, excuse me, the maintenance engineer at the church. (laughs) And uh, through Pastor Jeremiah's uh, input, uh, a church across town that was in our fellowship of churches had gone through a really hard time. It's called Westridge Baptist. And things had got so bad, they finally just turned to Pastor Jeremiah and said, tell us what to do. We don't know what to do. This was a church at one point had averaged about 120 but they'd had some problems which were not handled biblically. That led to more problems, of course, which were not handled biblically. They had a big split, and those issues weren't handled biblically. And the congregation kept dwindling. And um, it got to the point where they had another split, and then they had a business meeting. And can you picture this? In this business meeting, the members that are left are talking about, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And the pastor's 14-year-old son stands up and says, why do y'all quit? Why don't y'all just quit teasing yourselves? Everybody in this room knows what the problem is. She's sitting right there. And uh, you can imagine what that does for congregational unity. And uh, the church had a you know, second split and dwindled. And the congregation dwindled to where they had 17 voting members. And one night they had a meeting about what are we going to do, what are we going to do, and uh, they tried all kinds of things. Finally someone said, why don't we ask Dave Jeremiah if he'll help us? And they said, okay, but we need to just say what they voted to surrender their autonomy, place themselves under his control, and just we'll do whatever he tells us to do because we don't have any options. And so Dave Jeremiah agreed to help them under certain conditions, one of which was that woman had to leave the church. The pastor's son was right. And um, 
So part of the agreement was Pastor Jeremiah agreed that he'd start sending people over to the church to preach because they couldn't even get preachers on some Sundays. And I was one of three or four guys from the church that he started scheduling to go over there to preach. And uh, they said some nice things to me. And for me as a seminary student, this is wonderful. I get to study, to preach to real live sinners instead of preaching to a camera in homiletics class. <laughs> and uh, they gave me an honorarium. That was great. And uh, they said some nice things. And unbeknownst to me, they approached Pastor Jeremiah about the possibility of me becoming their pastor. I think what really happened is they really liked Cindy. <laughs> and they thought, if we're going to keep her, we've got to hire him. So I was hired on a six-month trial basis, very unbaptistic-like. And, uh, and Pastor Jeremiah raised money from five or six churches to support me while um, I was trying to get the church turned around. And I had learned from him about how to lead people to faith in Christ in their home, and I know how to meet people and greet them. And so I just threw myself into it while I'm finishing seminary. And uh, the church had averaged 38 in Sunday school the two months before I got there. And by God's grace, things just started taking off. And I knew, I mean, with our congregation, 17 members, 38 people, uh, I just knew Pastor Jeremiah basically said, we think we got money for you for a year. So, I mean, it's fish or cut bait. I mean, something has got to happen. And uh, I am kind of a visually oriented type guy. So I prepared five graphs where I tracked the average attendance of our services per month, average attendance per month in Sunday school, the a.m. worship, the p.m. worship, Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting. And then I had a fifth graph where I tracked our average uh, offerings per month. And, you know, just in the normal flow of church life, there's some months where you're just going to be higher than you know, other months and so forth. And my prayer was, as I started, was God help the graphs to go northeast. Because if the graphs don't go northeast, you know, I'm on a real short uh, time frame here. So I began preaching the word best I could. I began visiting people, presenting the gospel. People started getting saved. Some people became baptized. Some people started joining the church instead of leaving the church. And uh, we had been meeting in a house that had had the interior walls gutted. And I can still remember preaching in this house building. And the, before I got there, they'd put a modular unit on the side of it. It was, it was the big, and then a 12 by 60 trailer on the end of it. I mean, it was the most hodgepodge, <laughs> ugly looking thing. And I can still remember the first time I get up to preach, and there's people, so many people, that they're sitting in the over here off the side and I can't see I'm preaching to people I can't even see and we're sitting on metal chairs on a wood floor uh, I mean it was something but God began blessing and the church began growing and month after month the grass kept moving northeast and when I would meet with my deacons for a monthly meeting <clears throat> right from the beginning I began running off copies of the graphs and showing them to them and all the graphs are moving northeast. I mean, we're growing, began reaching people, and uh, things kept just progressing. It was in a wonderful way. Little did I realize at that point in time that I'm beginning to experience something that very few pastors get to experience, whether it's month after month, year after year, steady, consistent growth, both numerically and financially. And by God's grace, we were able to... <clears throat> um, have enough people that we could seriously think about building a new building, and we were able to get uh, financing for it. And we built a new building, and we instead of sitting on metal chairs, I mean, we had real auditorium with a beautiful ceiling and lights and padded pews and carpet and uh, a, our own baptistry for the first time. Later, we paved the parking lot. I mean, we thought we were on the edge of the millennium when we moved into that building, you know, from where we had been. I mean, it was such an exciting day and time. There was just a, there was an energy about what God was doing. It was obvious that God was blessing our congregation with people being saved. And, and my counseling ministry was growing. I'd, I'd been pursued counseling after two years. And um, I kept, uh, things kept progressing like that. And <clears throat> then uh, after we were in the new building, it was after about 
about six years into the pastorate, uh, mentally I plateaued. And what happened was I tried to pay. We were running probably at that time maybe 120, 130 or so maybe. I kept trying to pastor a church of that size the way I had started pastoring a church of 38. And you can't do it. I mean, physically you can't do it, but I tried. And uh, the result was I was just physically fatigued. Uh, I began compromising how much time I was spending in study for sermons and um, my time with Cindy and the kids, time with exercise. And I just mentally just uh, got fatigued. Um, I, I just say I just plateaued mentally. And, you know, it was about that time that um, I did not adjust to my style of pastoring. And the graphs leveled off, and then they started going southeast. That's something we had not experienced previously. And, of course, once you start the habit of taking the graphs to every deacon's meeting, once they start going southeast, you can't quit taking them to the meetings. And you just look at the graphs, and you can tell uh, we're not doing so well right now. And uh, <clears throat> things became more tense in our deacons' meeting. <clears throat> at, this, at the same time, I had people that once had been very complimentary about my preaching and teaching become very critical. I'll call one guy Dan. It's a guy that I'd helped save his marriage. I led his wife to Christ, baptized her, did significant marital counseling. And he came and was critical of my preaching, said, you know, I used to just be on the edge of my seat when you're preaching. Last week I fell asleep. Something's wrong with your preaching. And I said, okay, I know I could do better. What do you think I need to do? And Dan told me, he said, well, I don't know. Maybe we need more more illustrations. So I said, okay. So I tried to, I start trying to be Charles Swindoll and, you know, have more, better illustrations. Another guy named Steve came in and told me that... Uh, that they'd come to the church because of my preaching and teaching, the quality of it. But he thought that my preaching, he said, we're not, my wife and I haven't grown for six months, and we think it's because of your preaching. And uh, so I said, well, I know I need to do better. What do you think I need to do? And he said, well, we need more meat of the word. We need more Greek, more Hebrew. So I start trying to be John MacArthur. And uh, the problem is I'm not Charles Wendell, and I'm certainly not John MacArthur. And so as things are going down... Uh, there's increased tension also with my deacons. Uh, during this time, my secretary, who was very supportive, uh, saw a cartoon that she thought I would appreciate, and she gave this to me. Uh, that's kind of how I, kind of how I felt too on a lot of days. And uh, so the church entered into a very stormy, uh, stormy time, and it, it was hard. And um, there, there was tension in our deacons meeting like there had never been before. And on one of the meetings, the deacon said to me, he said, Randy, look, we used to be doing really well. And you are our leader during that. And we rejoice. But now we're not doing so well. And you're our leader. We expect you to figure out what's wrong and let's get it corrected. So stalling for time, I said, OK, give me a week. Come back next week. I'll have a plan. So that week, I called some people that I would turn to for advice. And basically, at least what I think I heard was they said, well, Randy, I mean, you, I mean, the God blessed the church with growth, but if, if the church is growing, it's not just due to you. And if the church is going through a bit of a time of pruning, it's not just due to you. And don't let them people, don't let them make you think it's all your fault and so forth. And probably I heard just what I wanted to hear. But uh, the next Saturday, we had a... Uh, deacon's meeting, and I led the devotion from the book of Nehemiah and talked about, you know, Nehemiah being diligent, building the wall, but there were people who were criticizing and wanting to detract him from it, and I talked about that a little bit, drew a few applications. Let's just say that devotional didn't fly. (laughs) And um, that night, one of the the deacons called me and said, Pastor, can we have a meeting, deacons meeting before Sunday school tomorrow morning? And by that point, I'm getting so weary of meetings. And I'd learned if we have a meeting before service, it messes with my mind. And I can't preach and teach the way I want to. 
So I said, no, we can't have a meeting before the service. But we can have a meeting afterwards if you want to. So after the meeting, we're um, going into this little room to have our meeting. And I noticed the assistant pastor, we had hired an assistant pastor from Grace Seminary, which is about 45 miles away, to come help us with the music. He was just part-time, came Saturday and Sundays. And he typically did not attend the deacons' meetings, but he starts coming like he's going to this meeting. And I stopped him, and I stopped and said, uh, are you coming to this meeting? He said, yes. I said, why? He said, you'll find out, and walked by me into the meeting. And that morning, um, four out of seven of my deacons resigned. And three of the seven had written statements. The assistant pastor had a lengthy written statement that basically said he thought I was unfit for vocational Christian ministry, and he called on the the deacons to revoke my ordination and dismiss me as the pastor. And some of my deacons charged me, one of the deacons charged me with spiritual infanticide. You know, infanticide is killing babies. I was charged with killing spiritual babies, which theologically I thought was impossible, but that was the charge. Uh, one man uh, identified me as a heretic, and one man charged me with preaching a social gospel. And that morning, my world caved in around me. And for a guy who, for years and years, had been wanting to preach and teach the gospel, who had people patting him on the back and encouraging him as you pursue... Um, That was a mess. The next Sunday came to be known as Black Sunday in our church history. Um, I had the power, according to the Constitution, to dismiss the music pastor. I dismissed him, said, we'll give you some severance. Do not come back. You're done. I could do that, according to the Constitution. And then I made arrangements. I hired a music teacher at a Christian school nearby. and So the next Sunday... um, I get up, to, right, I'm getting ready to introduce the song leader, the new song leader to come lead us in our worship time. And Dan, remember the guy I mentioned that helped him with his marriage? He stands up in the back and said, Pastor Patton, a whole bunch of us want to know what happened to so-and-so, the associate that I had dismissed. What happened with him? And I said, well, a whole bunch of people said, amen. And uh, I said, well, a full counting be given later, but the Sunday morning worship service is not the time to do it. There were a bunch of people said, amen. I mean, the tension and the kind, it's so thick you could cut it with a knife. That night, (laughs) uh, that night, I'm uh, sitting on the platform, and we're standing to sing or singing our second hymn or something, and in walk two deacons with the the music pastor that I told not to come back between them. They sit in the back row. The next time we stand to sing, they come up and sit in the front row. And I'm sitting over here on the, well, the podium seats. We got a printed agenda. We had planned to have testimonies from the floor that night. I leaned over to the song leader and said, there'll be no testimonies from the floor tonight. <laughs> I hadn't lost my sanity, you know. <laughs> Guess what I was preaching on? Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. So I do my best to preach on Joshua and the Battle of Jericho with those three guys sitting up front. And our custom was that we'd close the service by me going down, standing in front of the Lord's Supper table, and I'd make some closing exhortations, or that's where we'd stand to sing. And then I'd usually ask somebody to pray. I mean, I'm standing so close to the first guy and reach out and shake hands with him. And uh, so I... uh, Ask somebody to pray. I walk out. A bunch of people that are supportive of me walk out too. Because as quick as the guy praying says, amen, one of the deacons goes to the platform, tells them to turn the sound system back on, and he's preparing to lead and calling a special congregational business meeting to dismiss me as the pastor. And uh, in the providence of God, I'd been counseling a pastor who had to leave his pastorate because his wife left him. And he's been coming to our church. And he... He knew I was in trouble, but he didn't know the details. But he, with sitting in the auditorium with his good, strong voice, just stuck his hand up and said, Excuse me, sir. And he asked three questions. 
Number one, are you the person who ordinarily leads business meetings around here? The guy had to say no. Question two, who ordinarily does do it? Pastor Patton. Question three, why isn't Pastor Patton leading this one? And I'm standing at the back. The man at the podium said Pastor Patton refused to do it, which was a lie. And I said, that's a lie. I wasn't, didn't even know about this. People said, let Pastor Patton talk. And I went up and retook the pulpit, and I said to my congregation, this is as Corinthian as we can get. God is not happy with us right now. And I said, we got problems, and we got to get help, but this is not the way to solve it. And I'm saying to you as your pastor, I'm going to ask Brother So-and-so, that pastor, I'm going to ask him to pray, and when he says amen, I'm telling you, Pick up your Bible, get your coach, get your kids out of the nursery. Don't say a thing. Get in your car and go home and fall on your face and cry out to God for our church. And I called on him to pray. I got Cindy, got our kids out of the nursery. We went home, and that's what we did. That was Black Sunday. Well, the groups met. We couldn't resolve anything, so we decided we need help. And finally, we decided, look, we've got to get help here. And so somebody came up with the idea, everybody write down the name of three people that you think could come advise us, you know, like Acts 15, like they did in Acts. Have a council. So we collected all the names that have been nominated, and the three men who got the most votes were the three men before whom I most wanted to appear successful. And those three men were David Jeremiah, Pastor Bill Good, who had trained me in biblical counseling, and Pastor Dan Gillette, who had taught me so much about uh, leadership and evangelism. And, and so they con- we contacted those guys. They agreed. And so one night we had a meeting where these guys came together. And at first we thought we were going to do it in a little conference room. But people were, everybody in the congregation knew we were in a mess. People said they wanted to come, so we thought we'd move it to a bigger room. So many people came, we had to move it to the auditorium. You know, people have always shown up for a hanging. And uh, so we moved it to the auditorium. We started at 7 o'clock that night, and we finished at 1.30 the next morning. And everything I had ever done wrong in ministry was brought to light. And... Uh, the three men um, consulted after they gathered data, and um, <clears throat> some of you will be relieved to know that the three pastors decided that I am not a heretic, so please don't leave at the next. <laughs> and um, Pastor Bill Good is the one who spoke to me, and he admonished me for not handling problems quicker, and to... Um, to not give up on working with young men because of how the music pastor had burned me. And the deacons who uh, had resigned and made the charges against me were rebuked and told that the charges were unfounded and they were called to repent, seek my forgiveness. One of the men spoke to the music pastor, and he was basically told that unless he repented well, that pastor thought he would never have a meaningful ministry, which he has never done. And then our church was advised to have a vote of confidence next Sunday. After all they had heard, do you still want Randy Patton to be your pastor? So the next Sunday morning after the worship service, we dismissed all the people, non-members, and all the members were given a ballot, and it just basically says, do you want Randy Patton to continue as the pastor of Westridge Baptist Church? Yes or no? And I um, received a 75% positive vote, which under the circumstances I thought was pretty good. So I got up and announced that I intended to stay as the pastor. And when I announced that, 25% of my congregation stood up, walked out, and never came back. We lost our entire music program. We lost 75% of our youth leaders. I mean, our our church was uh, really dinged bad. Now, it was during this time 
that I had a pain in my gut for a period of several weeks that just would not go away. I mean, aspirin wouldn't touch it, sleep wouldn't touch it, exercise wouldn't touch it. There's just like this ache deep in my soul that just will not go away. And I was hurting so bad, the pain of life and circumstances drove me to God and His Word. And um, I began taking long walks, just carrying nothing but my Bible and and a notebook. And sometimes I'd sit under a tree and I'd take notes or I'd sit at a park bench and read or I'd go to the public library and go to a typing room and shut the door behind me and just read. I'm just looking for answers for my own soul. It was one one of those walks when I'm sitting under a big old oak tree one day that I read 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, and those verses became my new life verses. Those verses say, Wherefore also I make it my ambition that whether at home in the body or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Uh, <clears throat> during that time, it's verses like this that became so meaningful to me. First Chronicles 21.13, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. <laughs> that was my thinking. The, the psalm that helped me the most during that time was Psalm 55. Here's some verses that stood out to me. And I would say to you that when you're hurting, when your heart is breaking, when your world is turned upside down, or you're working with people whose world is turned upside down, draw them to Psalm 55. Here's part of what it says. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide thyself from my supplication. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Verses 6 to 8. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. Verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, (laughs) then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who's exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of the Lord in the throng. That verse, those verses especially spoke to me. Verses 16 to 18. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for there are many who strive with me. And verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Even the next chapter, Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I've put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Well, during this intense time of pain and suffering and bewilderment, You know, um, it was perplexing to me because I was committed to serving Christ. I was seeking to live a godly life. I was working hard. I had good theology. I was seeking to win the lost and disciple them. But my ministry was imploding. During this time of uh, intense pain and meditating on these scriptures and others, Part of what God did in me is he developed in me a new God focus. Prior to the time I've been telling you about, I used to be excited about being around what I called the great men of God. Through this trial, I learned to get excited about the great God of men. I humbled myself and acknowledged my sin, my failures to my congregation that was left. 
I confessed, purpose to grow. I did grow. My church forgave me. And my church grew too. One of the neat things that happened as a result of this, because I chose to stay, is everything in our church, in effect, was what I call just blown up into the air. I mean, we had to do a serious reset on almost all of our ministries. And the neat thing was, because of what God was doing in my life, I could change some significant ways of my own philosophy of ministry and come down and stay in the same place. Um, I had the privilege of pastoring that church for 12 years. And people ask me about how I did things. I sometimes have to say, now, do you want to know before the split or after the split? Because I was a different pastor by God's grace. And so I was able to think about what, how I was studying the scriptures. And I'm going to show you some of those in just a moment. And I was able to make some significant change. Here's what I want to just say. What a gracious God we serve. We serve the God of the second chance. My failures, which were significant enough to lead to the disaster I've told you about, God allowed me to continue serving. Three out of four people wanted me to still be their pastor. But what I find even more amazing, and and you can understand, at this point in time I've been telling you about, there was nobody, I mean nobody, that was calling Randy Patton and asking him for advice about anything. There's nobody. Randy Patton's calling a lot of people asking for advice, but nobody's calling me. Also, what I'd like you to think about is the difference that five years can make. Five years after Black Sunday, five years after the trial, that's what it came to be called, the trial, um, I was asked by the leadership of our state fellowship of churches to become what we called the state representative, basically to become a pastor to pastors and a consultant to churches. I, I still think about that. What a gracious God we serve. We serve a God who uses the failures in our lives for our benefit and for his glory. Now, what are some of those things that I learned that led to the changes? Well, part of it was what I call this pastor's orientation or the spiritual leader's orientation or the leader's way of thinking. And there are three key areas where my thinking needed to change and did change. The first one is what I would call orientation to ministry. And I knew Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, but I studied it afresh and gained new understanding. For example, I learned that God's provision is gifted men to the church. Verse 11 says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. The purpose, verse 12, is to equip the saints. It says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. I I learned very clearly during this time, the pastor is not to be the star performer. The pastor is to be a helpful coach be leading people forward to equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. God's pattern is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're to measure success. Uh, We're to to keep equipping the saints until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God's prohibition, What he wants us to avoid is instability or theological gullibility. That's talked about in verse 14. He says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And God's procedure for doing this is verse 15, we're to speak the truth lovingly. Uh, This is a verse that had tremendous impact on me. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ. We're to speak when it would be easy to be quiet. We're to speak truth, to say what needs to be said, even when it would be easy to duck the truth out of fear of what might happen. 
But then we had to speak truth lovingly. That is, we have to say what needs to be said, but we have to say it in a way that's for the benefit of the other person. In other words, we don't say it in a way that's easy for us to say it. We say it in a way that makes it as easy for them to receive as possible. Love is acting with another person's best interest in mind. God used this verse to really challenge me because of my focus on pleasing people. I was a people pleaser. And God had to teach me and did teach me. You've got to speak. You've got to speak truth. You've got to learn how to speak truth lovingly. Say what needs to be said, but say it in a way that is for the benefit of the individual. And then God's profit is the growth of the body. The verse 16 says, From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 changed my thinking, my orientation to ministry. But another area where I had to change and where God brought about change was related to spiritual growth. And God used three passages of Scripture to really nail me and help me grow. One was Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, which, as you know, is one of the go-to passages of biblical counselors, where to put off the old man, put on the new by changing the way we think. It was during this time period that I began developing this diagram, which uh, now probably some of you have seen in some form or other, about where to put off the old self, verse 22. That Verse 22 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And as I studied that passage carefully, I noticed that the number one dominant characteristic of the old self is that it's feeling-oriented or it's motivated by lust. But also I was impressed that the same Bible told us not to do some things, also told us to do some things, In other words, put on some things. And verse 24 says we're to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And as I meditated on it, I came to the conclusion that just as the old man is feeling-oriented, the new man is is Scripture-oriented. And just as the old man is motivated by lust, the new man is motivated by a love of Christ. But the part of what really helped me was my study of Ephesians 4.23, And understanding that that short verse that's just packed with meaning, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And uh, as I'll talk about in the next hour, that had a profound influence on my approach to preaching. Being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Another passage that was very helpful in, in my thinking regarding spiritual growth was James 1, 2 to 4 and verse 12. And I'd, I'd preached through James. I mean, I'd preached on these verses. But again, in the time of crisis, in the time of personal pain, the Scripture took on a whole new significance and meaning to me as I meditated on these verses. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." And uh, I was greatly convicted because I was doing anything but counting it all joy for the mess I was in. And I had to realize that the Scripture's teaching, you don't rejoice in the crisis, you don't rejoice in the mess. I mean, God wouldn't expect me to go around saying, praise Jesus, my church split. But it was we were to rejoice not in the trial itself, but we're to rejoice in how God can work in our lives through the trial and the growth that can come come out of that. Uh, a verse that I had memorized, I think maybe even as a teenager or as a young pastor, verse 12 took on a whole new significance to me. It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I, I, I had observed that many people are what I would call watermelon seed, wet watermelon seed Christians. I mean, think back this summer when you were having some... Uh, uh, piece of watermelon and and uh, you're done and the rinds around the end of the plate and the bunch of the seeds are in the middle and the juice and so forth if you were to put your thumb down real hard on one of those seeds what would happen it's, 
And I'd observed as a pastor, that's what happens with a lot of people. I mean, back when our church started having difficulties, it's just amazing how many people just kind of flaked off because they said, I don't, we were in another church, I had a hard times, we don't want to do that again. And uh, people, and I saw that in my counseling, when people started having difficulties in their marriage. I was stunned by how quickly some couples would, would abandon their vows to each other or, or how, they, how quickly they start talking about maybe we ought to, you know, let the state raise our child that we're having trouble with or something. And, and, um, but the scripture says, blessed or happy is the man who perseveres under trial. And God used that to just say to me, look, I'm going to stay. If the people will have me, I need to learn how to persevere instead of being a quitter, which was the tendency of my heart. And then I studied that passage. You'll receive the crown of life. I'd already done a series on eschatology prior to that, where I said the crown of life I had taught Crown of life is something we'll receive someday when we get to heaven, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. As I studied the passage during this time, I changed my view on that. Uh, I think what it means is the person who learns to persevere under trial is crowned with life itself. And during this time, what what God helped me to realize, I I thought about my own congregation. I thought, you know... Who are the people I like to go visit as a pastor? And it dawned on me, I don't really enjoy going to visit the healthy or the wealthy or, you know, the up-and-comers and so forth because they're usually gripers. I mean, they've been blessed, but they're unhappy about something. And it dawned on me, the people I like to go visit the most are Rita and Ethel. They're two elderly widows each living by themselves, no family around. But these are women that were not well-educated, but they love the Word of God. They brought it to church with them every time. They're so kind and so encouraging to me. I mean, these were dear women who, in with physical difficulties and all kinds of other challenges, they really believe there's a God in heaven who knew about them and who cared for them. And this is a good day, Pastor. I thought, they have been crowned with life itself. That's what that passage is teaching. Well, here's a third passage that really spoke to me. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. God really impressed upon my heart that he expects all of us as believers, and especially me, to take what we've learned and use it to help other people. Here's that passage of Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Could I ask this favor? Could, could I have your eyes for just a moment? Let me quote this passage for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't comfort you in your time of affliction. God didn't comfort me in my time of affliction to make us comfortable. He comforted us to equip us to comfort others. The principles are transferable. And what I had to repent of is I'm kicking at the very trial that God is using to prepare me to have a wider ministry of comforting others. You need to think about that in your own life. You need to think about that, helping your counselees to catch that perspective. And we need to point out to people that he is the God of all comfort, which means that when we're hurting, we ought to go to him quick, right? Because any, any uh, comfort we get ultimately comes from him. Well, let me just talk about one other area before we uh, take our break. 
God also had to teach me some things, how to think about problems. And what I'd like you to do is grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And we want to focus on verse 18. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. Now, we all know that the church at Corinth just riddled with problems. I mean, none of us feel encouraged if a visitor to our church comes for a time or two and we try to visit them and get acquainted and find out what they're thinking is about our church. None of us will be encouraged if they say, you know, every time I come to your church, it just reminds me of the church at Corinth. I mean, that is not a compliment, right? So, so with understanding that, look with me at verse 18. Paul says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, the word translated divisions is the Greek word schismata, from which we get the English word schism or schism, however you choose to pronounce that word. And, you know, just in popular church talk, we talk about splits. That's what it's talking about. You know, Paul says, I hear there's divisions, schisms among you, and in part, I believe it. But now look with me at verse 19. Verse 19 says, there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, here's that verse. The word translated factions in verse 19 is the Greek word iresis. And it refers to differences of opinion on something. About people just thinking about things differently. Having different opinions or views on something. And oftentimes, it's differences of opinion that are held strongly and promoted that fuel the splits. Right? Someone say right. I mean, that, that's what happens, right? We differ on something, and we differ strongly enough that there's the split. Now, God used this verse in my life in a profound way. Look with me. He says, there must also be factions among you. Pastors, church leaders, think about that. God says, there has to be differences of opinion among you. And I'd just say for all of you, I mean, we all love when things are going great in our churches, but if there hadn't been an issue in your church for a while, I'd say to the pastors, uh, y'all be a little bit nervous. Because you may think you know where people are, but you don't know where people are. In fact, look what the scripture says. There must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are approved among you may become evident among you. So let me, let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's pretend that uh, my Bible with a the watch on it right now, that this just is a dividing line. And some issues come up in the church. Could be any, anything. What I'd want you to think about is, really, whatever the issue is, there's just basically two responses to that issue. One issue is, you can choose to come down what I'm going to call God's side of the issue. And coming down on God's side of an issue means that you choose to think and act biblically, even if it's awkward, even if it's uncomfortable. All right? The other option is to come down what I'm going to call man's side of the issue. And what I've learned, and my experience is the group of churches that I worked with for 24 years, we prided ourselves on being committed to the scriptures and rock-solid Bible believers and everything. But when confronted with issues, particularly things that would call for church discipline, over and over again I heard people say, well, I know what the Bible says, but. And then they proceed to rationalize not obeying the Bible. And what this scripture is teaching is this. There must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are approved, the word approved is the Greek word dokimos. It means to be tested by fire, to be found pure, to be genuine, to be the real deal. I mean, 
to, to be dokimos means you're just not talking the talk, you're walking the walk. All right? And other scripture would teach that we should all want to be approved by God. Dokimos. There must be factions among you in order that those who are approved can become evident. And one of the values of just an issue coming up, and we've had some issues this last year, haven't we? Over which Christians have differed? Doesn't matter what the issue is. Are we going to follow biblical thinking? Are we going to talk like God wants Christians to talk when they differ? Are we going to act? Are we going to have the kind of motives? Are we going to come down on God's side of the issue? Or, I know what the Bible says, but... Um, this was just life-changing to me as I studied this scripture out. Here's some things I concluded about problems. They are to be expected. The scripture says there must be problems among you. Second, I learned they provide opportunities to teach and model. Uh, I was greatly encouraged after the trial a couple that was relatively new to our church. Um, when the whole thing, the dust people had left and were kind of picking up the pieces and everything, this couple came and told me that they decided they were going to stay at the church and everything. I said, I'm so glad. And, and uh, I, I, I was greatly encouraged by that. And they said, yeah, we were there at the trial that night. And they said, uh, my husband leaned over to me about an hour into the meeting and said, I know who's right. And uh, she, I said, she, the wife is telling me the story, and she said, well, who's right? She said, the pastor and the deacons that are sitting with him. And she said, how do you know that? He said, watch how they're acting. And the way we were conducting ourselves, I mean, the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no man is pursuing. The righteous are bold as a lion. He saw it. So problems and how you handle them provide an opportunity to teach and model and out of that can come great, uh, great blessing. Third, I learned that problems provide an opportunity to see who will agree with God. And number four, I want to just remind you that what happens teaches. For example, if your church had, I'm used to churches, the congregational um, business meetings for major issues, and if in a congregational meeting, if somebody, a man can stand up and with sinful anger attack the leadership of the church, the elders or the deacons or the pastor, and speak against the, the motion and so forth in a sinful way, violate the four rules of communication and so forth, and then storm out of the meeting and nothing happen, you have just taught everybody, it's okay to act like that. Because what happens teaches. And what I have taught pastors, what I taught my deacons after this change in leadership, I mean, we talked about this. I said, if in the future we have anybody stand up and speak against a motion, people are welcome to do that. But they can't violate the four rules of communication. And they cannot attack anybody's character because the Bible says you can't do that. And they can't speak with sinful anger. And I said, if anybody ever does that, one of you deacons ought to be on your feet right now, and you ought to say something like, Bill, wait, excuse me, looks like you're about done. I just want to say, Bill, I love you, and I need to tell you, I think what you just did was sin publicly. And I really think you need to take a deep breath, think about it, and then I think you need to ask everybody here to forgive you because you sin publicly. And you look like you're getting ready to leave. If you leave, I want you to know when this meeting's over, I'm coming by your house, and uh, maybe one of these other deacons are coming with me. But we care too much for you to allow this to go on, and this is not going to happen in our church. Now, you only have to do that about once every five or six years. <laughs> and people get the idea, you don't stand up and shoot off your mouth in a business meeting here. Right? You know why? What happens teaches. And so many times in our church ministries, we are reaping the results of teaching by allowing behavior that's unbiblical, and now we're reaping the results of it. Well, let's uh, stop here. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about some of those changes I made and how I implemented it in our church ministry. Thank you for your attention. We've got 15 minutes.
turn you off. Okay.